Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at Sardis Fellowship Baptist Church. This week, Pastor Rod Heppel continues our Family Matters Sermon Series, focusing on forgiveness and marriage. Thanks for listening, and enjoy! Um, If you've been with us for the last number of weeks, uh, you know that we're into this sermon series called Family Matters, and uh, it's got a bit of a play on words if you're new to this. Um, You know, family matters as in families are important, and family matters as in we all have challenges and issues relating to family. And so that was kind of the the theme and why we went with it. We've been hearing lots of feedback from people, and we appreciate that as staff. We get to engage with you. We get emails and conversations and stuff like that. And by and large, there are things that people are saying, yeah, this is really encouraging, and this is positive, and I see the upside of talking about family. But there's also the hard stuff, right? There's the things where it's like, man, I hadn't thought about that for a while. And maybe it surfaces some thoughts that are more along the line of regret or loss. And we get that. That's why we're talking about this, because it's not easy. But God has a purpose and a plan for each of us in our families, and we're trying to motivate ourselves to bring our best to whatever that situation looks like. You know, the family today, it would be hard to try to describe it in just one short sentence because there's so many variables that are taking place. And you might find yourself in a situation, like when I originally was talking about the sermon series, where the Winslows, which was this family and a TV sitcom, and the boy next door, whose name was Urkel, kind of adopted himself into their family. And uh, that guy kind of found it interesting, like, who are you? You're the neighbor kid. What are you doing here? You're always here. And so whatever your situation might be that defines your family, circumstances you planned for and circumstances you didn't plan for, the reality is you have what you have by way of your family. And so in that very first week that I was introducing this topic, I brought three thoughts to us there, and I just want to remind us of them as we get into today's topic. Family matters because God is good. So the idea is that family is important because God says it's important because it's his design. And that the design is good. There's not a problem with the design for family. There's a problem with the fact that we're sinful people, which takes us to the second one. Family matters. God is a redemptive God. Where there are challenges, where things go sideways and things don't work out according to the plan, we know that by God's grace, he is working in and through us to redeem our families. And then the last one I pointed out there is family matters because you're a part of the family of God. Because for some people, the nuclear family is not the reality and there maybe isn't anyone. You might be the last person living in your family and you think, I have no family, but we were reminding ourselves we have the family of God. And that is hugely important in our relationships with one another to realize we are in community and that God has plans and designs for us in the church family. We are all a part of that. As we come to our topic today, I want you to hear everything that I'm about to say through the lens of God's grace. I don't want you to hear any kind of judgment or criticism today. It's a tough topic, but it's one we need to talk about. It's this topic, marriage and forgiveness, as you can see there on the slide. And you might be thinking, oh goody. There's a lot of things we could focus on if we're speaking about marriage and and family, but I've chosen this one, just this one, because it's a key aspect for any marriage relationship that forgiveness needs to be there. A couple of months ago, our family was uh, over at our friend's place, and we were playing one of these card games where you ask a question, and then you have to answer it, right? And so we're reading off the cards, and everyone in the circle is answering the question the best they can. And mine came up, and it said, what would you say is the most important ingredient in a marriage? And I'm like, oh, most important. Those ones are really hard when they say the most important, right? Like, you, give me the top ten, right? And my wife and the other wife of my friend, they both said, well, I know what it is. And I, both of us are kind of like, oh, okay. 
And almost simultaneously, like they'd planned this, you know, like they called ahead of time and said, hey, I'll tell you what, we'll set up the cards, this will be rods, this is how we're going to do this. They both say forgiveness. And I'm like, well, yeah, duh, of course, that one, but, you know. <laughs> I mean, let's talk about love, let's talk about humility, let's talk about communication, conflict resolution. There's so many things you could talk about, but forgiveness is pretty key. You need forgiveness in your marriage relationship. And so both of us as husbands looked at each other like we'd just been let in on a little secret by our wives about something they knew about living with us. It's key. Forgiveness. We could talk about many things, but today we're talking about this. Now there's a famous quote attributed to this lady. This is Billy Graham's wife, Ruth. And uh, she is known for making many famous quotes around marriage. Um, Good ones, like this one. A happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers. (laughs) <laughs> There's actually a lot packed into that one little statement, isn't there, right? She doesn't say marriage in general. She doesn't say any marriage. She says a happy marriage. Like, if you want a happy marriage, then there's a key ingredient. There's a key element that you need to have. And, and then another part is it's not just one person, but two. And you need to be good at it. <laughs> I think there's a lot in that statement. If you want a happy marriage, then it's going to require two good forgivers in that relationship. It all doesn't just fall on one person. Um, by the way, uh, you know, that kind of supports the, the whole idea that when we're in a marriage relationship and there is a problem, there's two of us. And there's always two of us. In fact, many times I'll be having a conversation with either the husband or the wife, and I haven't yet had the conversation with the other person. And then when I do, I sit there and I realize, well, actually, it's somewhere in the middle, and there's a challenge that's going on that both of you are a part of. It's never just one person or the other. But that said, I will say that it may only take one to sabotage a marriage and end it. But usually there's two people that are involved in this, and it takes two. She has another great quote that I'm not going to put up on the screen, and it says this. If two people agree on everything, one of them is unnecessary. (laughs) You can reflect on that one. A couple of weeks ago, I was having a conversation with a friend. And I told him I'd be preaching today on forgiveness. To which then he shared with me a really hard story about his upbringing with a father who was not a very good man. He caused a lot of hurt and pain in my friend's life. And then as he shared about this and how hard the journey of forgiveness was for him, he said to me, he said, if you're going to be speaking on forgiveness, don't just use platitudes. Well, that got my attention. I thought, well, I don't want to use platitudes. I actually went and looked up the word platitude, even though I generally knew the gist of what he was trying to say. I wanted to understand more clearly this warning that he was giving me because there was something that he had felt in his experience when People like myself as pastors are trying to address an exceedingly difficult topic that he was trying to warn me, don't do that. And so the word platitude, if you're not familiar with it, is a remark or a statement, especially one with a moral content, which forgiveness would be, that would fit that category, um, that has been used too often to be interesting or thoughtful. So I think the idea is that the phrase has become cliche, as we sometimes say, right? Um, So it could be that... Uh, He had in mind things like, you know, forgive and forget. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Those kinds of things, right? Even maybe things like um, forgive before the sun goes down or forgive as the Lord forgave you. Things that come straight out of Scripture can be heard in such a way that feels shallow or empty, that it's not coming to hear in the ears of a person who's truly been hurt by someone else as something that's landing deeply in their own hearts because it seems maybe a bit flippant. So I want to have that caution in mind today as we talk about forgiveness 
I do not want you to hear me speaking about this topic in any kind of a way that would be defined as a platitude. He also wrote me the next day and said, you know, Rod, I've been thinking more about our conversation on forgiveness. And then he said this, I think healing is best found at the foot of the cross. I think healing is best found at the foot of the cross. That means we have to wrestle with it, with Jesus. It's not just me and the other person. Jesus is in this equation. Then he quoted me a C.S. Lewis quote that has helped him so much on his journey of healing and his relationship with his own father and forgiving his father. C.S. Lewis said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in the other person because God has forgiven the inexcusable in me and you. I think that really hits the heart of what would be the basis for forgiveness, is that it's coming from an understanding of our relationship with God. It is not independent of him. That we would understand uh, about our own problem of sin before a holy and righteous God that would then inform that if I've been forgiven by him, he has an expectation of me. And if he has an expectation for those of us who are brothers and sisters in Christ to operate with that kind of understanding of forgiving each other, then how much more so within the family, right? Our closest relationships. God wants us to forgive within our own homes and husband to wife and wife to husband. So here's a few passages of scripture just to give us a bit of a taste of the words of Jesus in the New Testament and then a few others from like the Apostle Paul around forgiveness. And I I want you to kind of, you know, hear what the New Testament has to say about this topic because it's one that is taken very seriously. It is one that is very central to what our faith is all about. In fact, it's probably one that's very central to the cross itself as we think about the communion table today and what it cost Jesus Christ to bring about our forgiveness. So the words of Jesus, the Lord's Prayer, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Matthew 6, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. That is a hard verse. That might be one of the hardest verses in the entire New Testament. Matthew 18, Peter Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Which, of course, he's thinking, that's pretty generous. person keeps coming back seven times. That's pretty good. And then Jesus says to him, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, which is actually not a mathematical equation that once you hit 70 times, 70, but rather always and forever for as many times as you've been sinned against. Forgive that person. And then this one in Mark 11, and when you stand praying, that was the custom in their day, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. This is reflecting on the previous verse in Matthew. And then Luke 6, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And then the words of the Apostle Paul, both in Ephesians and Colossians. And again, this is just to give us a sense of what the Bible says about forgiveness. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, 
just as in Christ God forgave you. You see that link there again between our relationship with God and what he expects of us to forgive one another. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive them. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. We forgive others because God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. That's the idea. But that's not easy. Uh, A couple weeks ago was Mother's Day maybe three weeks ago now, and I was preaching and I brought out that verse in Colossians and I I remember saying at that time like this, forgive as the Lord forgave you really lands like a bombshell, like a kaboom, you know? What? Yes, because it, it causes us to wrestle with, well, how has God asked me or how has God forgiven me? That it makes me wrestle with that part of the equation before I can even get to the second part, which is forgive others then. Forgive them in the way that Christ has forgiven you. And I hope that isn't heard as a platitude. Um, I don't think the Apostle Paul meant it to be heard as a platitude. I think he meant it to be heard as the reality or the essence of what the gospel of Jesus Christ does in each and every one of us when we truly submit our lives to him. It's on that basis. How has God forgiven me completely? What did it cost Jesus to forgive me his very life? It's on that basis that he asked me to forgive others. But remembering the caution of my friend who's walked down this hard road of forgiveness over a long period of time with his father, I'm reminded of the fact that it's not just like flipping a switch. That you would think that everything would be made right again because I forgave the person. Healing happens, he says, at the foot of the cross. And that is a process, he says. Part of our struggle to forgive someone else is I think that we're thinking that the offense that I have against Jesus and everything I've ever done that I would put in my category of my sins, none of them are as serious against Christ as what I would say the offense of this other person is against me. Do you follow? I think that's part of our logical human kind of thinking is like, I'm a, yes, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not a bad person like that. I haven't done to Jesus what that other person did to me. How is it that I'm being asked to forgive that person? And I think that what we do need to understand is that ultimately our sin is against God. He is the only one who is perfect. He is the only one who is holy. Between me and you, we are sinners and we hurt each other. We offend one another. But God is not a sinner. God is holy. And it cost the life of his son to bring about the forgiveness of my sin, whether I calculate that to be big or small. It cost Jesus his life. That was the only way that a just payment could be made for my sin. Before I think about anyone else and what it must be for God to forgive them, I have to think about my own sin. My sin was the reason why Jesus went to the cross. And when I wrestle with that, I think I begin to understand more deeply why it is that he asked me to forgive someone else. I think I focus on the wrong relationship when I'm being asked to forgive. I focus on the other person. I I think things like, can I forgive that person for what they did to me? And I start to process that. I, I start to assess, do I think they're really, truly sorry and remorseful for what they did? I start to weigh in, how many times now have they done the same thing that they're asking to be forgiven for? Or how grave was the offense that I am now having to consider whether or not I would forgive them? These are the kinds of things that I think are natural to us. These are our natural tendencies that we process as to whether or not I'm going to forgive someone who's hurt me. But forgiveness of someone else is actually based first and foremost on my relationship with Jesus. I forgive someone else because I have been forgiven by the Lord. I don't know if that helps you, but it helps me. Because there isn't sometimes much in the well 
by way of a heartfelt sense of being able to forgive someone else, but it should not be able to inhibit my ability to extend forgiveness to someone else. Extending forgiveness to someone else does not let them off the hook. As you often have probably heard, it lets us off the hook. It leads us away from our own heart that becomes hard and our own heart that becomes embittered. And we often live with the feelings of that while the other person walks on in their life. King David was someone who understood that his sin was against the holy God. You know the story probably, David and Bathsheba and the sin that went on there, first adultery, then murder of Bathsheba's husband at the hand of Joab, uh, the commander of the army. And David comes up with this statement towards God. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before you. Against you and you only have I sinned. And that's the line that jumps out off the page. That's why I've highlighted it there in green for you to see. Against you and you only? I think there are some other people here. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's the distinction. It's the evilness against God because of the holiness of God. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. I am not right in my verdict and justified in my judgment because I am limited by my understanding of all of these situations. God has no limitation. Secondly, God is the only one who is holy and righteous. I am not holy and righteous. And so David, although he would say, yes, I sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, I sinned against Uriah, her husband. Yes, I sinned against Joab and the army of Israel who he employed to take care of this death situation. He sinned against all of Israel, but ultimately he would say, I sinned against your name, God, because you are holy. You are righteous. And my act of sinfulness is against you first and foremost, while at the same time causing such harm to others. It's only when I see my situation in light of God that I think I can ever bring myself to understand, to forgive someone who's hurt you so deeply. I mean, some situations are easier to forgive. I'm not talking about every situation being equal. I'm talking about the hard ones where we try to wrestle with understanding how could I ever forgive a person who's done that against me? And I'm trying to help us make a connection between our relationship with who our God is and what it is that he asks of me. And when we have the understanding of my relationship to God, then maybe my ability to forgive someone else like my spouse is that um, option. What about when there's been abuse? That is one that often will come to our minds. Physical, sexual, emotional There are a host of situations that go well beyond the everyday infractions of marriage. I'm aware of that. And if you find yourself in one of those situations, I would invite you to seek help. Um, You will need time with a counselor who's licensed, who's going to be able to take you through a process of healing. These things are not settled on our own and they're not settled easily or quickly. I think most of us bring something from our childhood years into our adult years and we just kind of glaze over it. Um, and we need to do work to understand what went on in our upbringing, that maybe we're still carrying that baggage into our marriage relationships. Secondly, I would say that forgiving someone doesn't mean that there's no boundaries that are set. You can forgive someone, but you might not be there when they return to their toxic behavior of abuse. There are boundaries that are set even while forgiving the other person, because again, forgiveness isn't flipping a switch for restoration. It would be step one in a process of restoration. But that takes time and healing. I have a friend. I have lots of friends. And it's always easier to tell your friend's stories than your own. I have a friend 
and he's given me permission to tell this story. Eight years ago, he wrecked his marriage and his relationship with his kids. At the time, he'd been married for 12 years. Um, Two beautiful wife, three kids, all Christians, attending church, Christian family, everything was going fine. And he left his wife. And he left his family. And he wrecked it all until God got his attention and drew him back to himself, softened his heart towards God first. He repented of his sin. He made right with the Lord. I'm not going to share all the details of his story because I've invited him and his wife to come this fall and share their story with us. I want them to do that because it's one of the most powerful stories of restoration I've ever heard. After God spoke to him and he repented, he wanted to make right with his wife. He went back to her over and over again trying to seek reconciliation and be given a second chance and she wasn't letting him in. He had a mentor at the time. He went to his mentor and he was deeply hurt because he didn't understand why if God had healed his heart and he was coming back and he wanted to make things right, why his wife wasn't so quick to go along with that. The mentor said to him, let me give you a word picture. He says, let's say that you invite me to go on a hike. It's an overnight trip. It's a long one. And we're hiking along and we're well along in this journey and we're well up the path. And we've been sharing times together and we've been having a wonderful time and then for no reason at all, you push me over the edge of the cliff and I tumble down the side of the hill. And I break all sorts of bones and I barely survive. I go to the hospital, I'm all busted up, I'm getting taken care of and praise the Lord I lived and there I am in my hospital bed and I find out that you want to come in and see me. And you come into my hospital bedroom and I'm all broken up And you are pleading for forgiveness because you've realized how wrong that was and you're asking me to forgive you. And he said, I will forgive you, but it'll be a long time before I go on a hike with you again. (laughs) Forgiving someone doesn't mean that you don't draw a boundary. You may need to. Maybe not forever, maybe for a time. But how do we get to that place, right? Let's be honest, I mean... It's one thing to say something with your mouth. It's another thing to let it hit your heart. And that's what I think my friend was trying to say, the healing process at the foot of the cross. This isn't something that just happens automatically. So I want to share two stories from the Bible. The first one is a negative story, kind of a what not to do. And the second one is a positive story, uh, what you should do. Okay, so track with me here as I read two stories for us. The first one is a parable. And it's in that same context where Peter was asking, how many times do I forgive a brother? Up to seven times? And Jesus says... 77 times, seven times 77. So let's pick it up in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him canceled the debt and let him go but when that servant went out he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins he grabbed him and began to choke him pay back what you owe me he demanded his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him be patient with me and I'll pay it back but he refused instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt when the other servants saw what had happened they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? 
In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, don't get lost in the details. Don't get lost in the harshness of this story because a parable is told to make a point. One main message that Jesus wants to teach Peter and all of us about forgiveness, and it's that he wants us to understand that we've been forgiven by God, and we've been forgiven a lot, everything, often, completely. Therefore, we are to forgive one another. That's the message of the parable, and he makes it land with a punctuation mark. So that's the first story. Because at that point, you might be thinking, okay, I get it, that's a severe warning, but it's not really softening my heart to the whole idea of forgiving someone else. I think I'll forgive them because I fear what might happen if I don't. Not quite the right motivation. So let's look at the second story. Luke, chapter 7. When one of the fairies, this is not a parable, by the way. This is a story that actually happened. So a distinction from the first one. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Picture reclining as in sitting with your feet laid backwards at this table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. I'm sure a very comfortable moment for anyone. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him. So Jesus is answering his thoughts. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see that line right there. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. I don't think any of us have been forgiven little by God. I think the point is we perceive ourselves through the lens of what we think our offense towards God is, and sometimes we think it's little. Everyone has sinned greatly against God because he is holy. It's only when we realize that that we realize when we are forgiven much, our heart loves much. Which person do I want to look like? In the story, the first one, a person who has a hard heart, unrepentant, unforgiving towards others, or a story like this, where your heart is softened, and you recognize the depth of your own sin before a holy and righteous God that allows you to extend forgiveness to others. 
Healing happens at the foot of the cross, or as in this case in this story, at the foot of Jesus. Participating, participating in communion is a way in which we attempt to sit at the feet of Jesus and have this conversation about his forgiveness for us and his healing in our lives, and we're going to do that in a few moments. When I think about marriage, no one ever stands at the altar saying, you know, I really hope I have a lousy marriage and that it doesn't work out. We're going along in marriage and offenses happen, and I think if it's undealt with, if it's unforgiven, it accumulates and it builds like a callus in our hearts, and our hearts become hard. And what Jesus said to those Pharisees who questioned him about Moses permitting marriage, and Jesus said he permitted it because of the hardness of their hearts. I think my message has to do with don't let your hearts become hard. Let forgiveness be the softening process to keep your hearts hard because it's when hearts become hard that then our marriages are fractured to the point of divorce. I don't know your marriage situation. I don't know your story. In no way do I want to make light of it. I do not know your deepest hurt. I just know that we all face certain degrees of challenges in our marriages. Some situations are far more difficult than others, but it's only when we take it to Jesus and we rest at the foot of the cross that we can find the help we need and the healing we need. I want to close today with one story of my own. So easy to talk about other people's failures. Today you get one of mine. There have been many times when I've blown into my marriage, but there was one that I would say was my worst. It was a Monday after work, and as I came home to greet my wife, I came through the door and I could feel a coolness that led me to believe something might be wrong. Us men have an acute sense of awareness of these things, <laughs> highly gifted, intuitive spirits. So I asked, is something wrong? To which she replied, well, if you don't know, then we have a problem. <laughs> we may have a problem. I was racking my brain trying to think, what have I done? What did I say? What did I miss? I drew a blank. I said, you know, hey, I need a clue here. You know, could you help me? And when she told me, my knees went weak. And I realized that I had no defense. It was the greatest blunder of my marriage. I had no answer for her, not even for myself. How could I have forgotten on the Friday that she had shared with me that she had a lump on her side that was a tumor that at the time we didn't know what it was and I had not asked her about that once between her showing it to me on the Friday and here we are Monday after work. I tried to downplay it but with each word I spoke it fell flat lacking any substance. How? How could if I not asked about the health of the person I love more than any other person on the planet. I had no answer, just an empty sense of loss and deep remorse. What can one say to fix something when there is nothing that you can say to fix it? Have you been there? Nothing could be said, but something could be done, not to fix the situation, but maybe to work on me. So I called a counselor. And we began a process of exploring my inner world and what's been going on in my life and why, what would lead to an emotional disconnect not only with my wife but my kids. The inattentiveness to the ones that I love the most in my very family. A failure to care for those in my home when at the time I wore a hat called pastoral care to a community of believers at Sardis Fellowship. The road back was not easy. 
and it wasn't short. Um, it takes time to heal a deep hurt, and it takes time to restore trust after it's been broken. You know that. There was only one way that our relationship could be restored, and that would be if she could extend forgiveness to me. It wasn't a matter of, oh, you just need to understand this one thing, you know? No, it wasn't that. It wasn't about figuring out what was going on. It was about simply forgiving, and she did. And it was a benign tumor. She had it removed. She's fine. Praise God. But you know, so often we look at these situations, you can't go back. You can't undo it. You can't just dial the clock back and say, if I could just have a do-over, please take me back to last Friday and let's relive the weekend. You don't get to do that. You know that. We can't get to take back our words or our tone of voice or our anger or our actions. Only in brokenness and humility can we ask for forgiveness from the other person and allow forgiveness to be received. There were many good things that I learned from the counselor that over a series of weeks, but one phrase really stood out to me. He said, Rod, be attentive in your home. I didn't say pay attention. He said, be attentive in your home. You know what lands with me is so often we're not attentive with the one we're married to. Attentive. I think when we are attentive, we're ready to forgive and we're ready to receive forgiveness, to ask for it, to extend it. That keeps your heart soft. Forgiveness is a vehicle that allows restoration to happen. A happy marriage is a union of two good forgivers, and healing happens at the foot of the cross. That's what I want you to remember today. We're coming to this communion table. We're about to participate with your cups, and I invite the worship team up at this time. There are two symbolic elements here. Um, The juice, the bread, we know what they stand for. The body of Christ, his blood that was shed, right? What does that mean? The body of Christ, the blood that was shed. It means he died. It means he was brutally beaten and he gave his life and he did it for this reason you can see the highlighted words there for the forgiveness of sins that's what he did it for he did it for me and he did it for you and he did it to forgive our sins on the night that he was betrayed while they were still eating Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying take and eat this it's my body Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That day is yet to come. When they had sung a song, a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Understanding that at the very center of this act of sacrifice was to bring about our forgiveness with God Almighty. We're going to be singing this song, the worship team. You have your, your, your package, and you participate when you're ready. Maybe you just want to reflect through the song. Maybe you just want to look at the words. Maybe you want to sing along. It's your choice. But I'm giving you a moment in your hearts to reflect and then participate during the singing of the next song. I'd like to lead us in prayer. Father, as we come before this table today, we're reminded of the incredible sacrifice of Jesus, holy and perfect. He did not go to the cross for his own sin. He went there for mine.
and he went there to be able to forgive us that we might be made right with you. Thank you for that. Lord, I would pray that in the next few moments as we participate in this act of obedience, that we would sense your presence, that we would sense your softening of our hearts because you want us to live rightly with one another. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.